0: I have pressed the record button. And three, two. One. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is a special episode we're doing for you. This is uh, we have no one interviewing, or yeah, should I, did I say that right? We are not interviewing anybody for this episode. However, we have picked up on a term, and uh, we're calling that term courageous pedagogy. As you might have seen the uh, title of the podcast, courageous pedagogy. It kind of stems off of Chad, a little thing that I was doing on courageous leadership and Mm -hmm. asking myself man, there's got to be some crossover between this and what we're doing in the OER, OEP world. And uh, I feel like I'm kind of straddling two worlds here, maybe even three with one arm, two legs, doing the twister action with uh, IPC campus gig and the leadership stuff that I'm pretty passionate about. And then also uh, doing, uh, doing the podcast. So Um, here we are nonetheless, I just find it interesting Tim, Like when we were talking
1: off mic about how many of these terms and ideas transfer over so well, like the courageous leadership transfers over to courageous pedagogy. And like, there's a couple others that we'll talk about as we go here. It's, it's, I think it's super interesting how they just kind of one rolls into the other or you can use the same ideas basically.
0: Yeah. And it's, um, I'm sure as we get into it, we'll probably define it just a tiny bit differently than it would be defined in, in, let's say the leadership arena. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's a lot of crossover here. And, 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 um, I think when it works down into the practicality piece that obviously you're going to see a difference there, because we're talking about being in the classroom or being in higher ed rather than, um, leading a company or leading, leading a group of people. Yeah. But, um, as, as I've always believed and said, uh, being a facilitator of learning uh, in a classroom or or outside of a classroom for that matter doesn't have to be in a classroom uh, is a form of leadership, and so because you're having influence over that group of people, that's right. And and you're trying to get them to do something that they normally wouldn't do on their own necessarily, and so that is a form of leadership. So for me, that that's where this meshes, and I think we're going to have a good time talking about this subject today. Yeah, well, we always do. Well, it's true. It's true. It <laughs> doesn't take much for us to talk, does it? No. No, no. All right. So uh, let's get started with stage one. I got him lifted off in stages. So let's uh, start with stage one. Stage one, I, I've called like, what is courageous pedagogy? What What is it? What does it mean? Um, and I, I came up with this. I. Well, let me just say it this way. I came up with this this idea that there's there's this idea that we have excellent um, facilitators, excellent instructors, excellent faculty and they're good at what they do. They, they've, they've established a body of work and they're continuing to push themselves and grow. But then there just seems to be this other level like there there seems to be like excellent faculty yeah and then great faculty. And because I I love sports so much, you can see that in the sports world, too, in that, especially at the pro levels, where if you're in the pro level, you've already raised yourself above the 99% of everybody that plays, right? right? So you are in that top 1%. And then you start looking at, like, football or hockey, for instance, and there's only, like, 32 teams or or 26 teams or however many teams there are in in those respective leagues. Mm -hmm. And so there are those guys, all those guys are good. Like they're all good to make it to the pro level. Right. But there just seems to be another level in there where the greats hang out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's like that Jim Collins book, Good to Great, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And what was his idea, Jim Collins, about that being there's, good to great? There's
1: a ton of different companies out there. There's a lot of good companies. But what he did was a whole research project on what made companies great. So he looked at a lot of the... um higher up companies like that trade on the, the indexes there to see how they yeah. move, like Heinz and, or whoever is I mean, Heinz is a jury of somebody, but they, he looks into the bigger companies to find out what made them great as opposed to just good. Cause there's tons of good companies out there. Right. So yeah. And again, right. and then it goes into the whole blue ocean
0: shift, but we'll,
1: I'm getting way ahead of myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was also a good book. Yep. Um, and uh, actually there was, there was, two books in that series, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, when you think of, when you think of somebody being courageous, what do you think about? Somebody who's being courageous is somebody who, I always think of
1: fear. So they can, and they move on in the face of fear. They persevere in the face of fear. They they can move past it. They kind of face fear and work through it and yeah. try to go through it not just stop and run away from it. So that's kind of my yeah. idea of courage. Um, and it's the fear could also be like when things get really hard or difficult and it just feels like there's no way around To just
0: keep persevering. So perseverance, I guess, for me, when I think of courage. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, there's a great quote by one of my favorite all time leaders of all time, Winston Churchill. Mm. He said, courage uh, is what it takes to stand up and speak, but it's also what it takes to sit down and listen. Yeah.
1: And that's the part I think we don't like, We don't talk enough about that part. Yeah, exactly. When you talk about courage, you start thinking about all these war movies or, you know, the the good guy rises up in in the face of fear and does all these great things. But we don't talk about the times that maybe the good guy sits down and is is quiet in the face of a conversation that needs to be had or listens. Yeah, that's a really good quote. I like that. Feel free to take it. (laughs)
0: Done. It's now attributed to Chad Flynn. (laughs) <laughs> hey, hey, hey! I don't think that was uh, CC by. I think that's uh, pretty locked up there. Uh-huh. Um, I, I came across this one, and I can't remember where I remember this from, but uh, I wrote it down as soon as I started doing my notes on on this on this episode. And that courage is not the absence of fear; rather, it's enacting what needs to be done despite the fear. Yeah,
1: is that true? I mean, right? how many times do we think that you know it's the absence of, when it's not? Like, I anytime I feel like I've been brave. I've, in, mm-hmm. in spite of the fear, not because I don't have it. Mm-hmm. For sure.
0: No, exactly. Exactly. And it, it, it's almost like people who are courageous, I, I get kind of tired of the extrovert, introvert, uh, back and forth mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But I, I often wonder um, when, we, when we tend to look at people who are courageous, if we tend to label them extrovert rather than introvert, I don't know, that that may be a, a social issue that Maybe a social scientist can tackle, but you know it's it's often those people who take those like, yeah. bold moves, right? Like they just they're willing to take risks, and and um, it, it's all it's it's almost like uh, they're they're revolutionaries in some regard, right? Where they're they're, they're not how much on what I'm trying to say. They're they're not they're not satisfied with the status quo. They're not satisfied with their own level of practice if we want to call it that right they're almost revolutionaries in the sense that they want to move something forward or move something up right yeah yeah yeah. definitely so then is is courage like a muscle would you say I told I yes I do believe that it's
1: a muscle I do believe that the more you work it the more it's going to be easier not to say that it's going to be you're always going to be able to be courageous I think you'll always get blindsided by something but it's a practice almost I think more than anything right more than a muscle is if you practice courage you're going to start seeing results and from those results, you're going to realize that, okay, I can do this in this situation or you start seeing other ways that you can move around or through fears that you've had in other things or other areas or persevere through difficult times
0: or difficulties. Right. So that would force me to ask the question, do we need to face challenges every day then? (laughs) That's a very good question.
1: Um, Myself, I like I don't know. I'm gonna just speak speak strictly for myself. I believe that you, myself, I want to face challenges every day. I want yeah. to push past things that have been difficult to me. I always try to find something that they're not find something. Something always comes up on uh, something I'm struggling with. <laughs> you
0: don't you don't have to go looking no. for it that much. Well, as you? a
1: parent of four and somebody who's working on their master's degree and as a teacher, it's there's going to be <laughs> pa- struggles there no matter what. So there's plenty to go yeah. around. But even so, like if there was none, like say my kids are all grown up, they're all doing well. And you know, I've got my master's, I'm sitting on top of the mountain. I think no matter what, I would always be looking for that because it makes me feel like I'm becoming a better person. And that's kind of my goal. I am always trying to strive to be better, strive to make my situations better, strive to make those in my situations better. So yeah, I think I would look for it. How about yourself?
0: Yeah. You know, I kind of feel the same way. I, i Philosophically, I'm like, yeah, of course. If you if you want to if you want to take that analogy that courage is like a muscle, then you're going to want to work it out, right? You go to the gym for a reason. You go to the gym to get stronger. Yeah. And you know, being somebody who used to go to the gym a lot and was into powerlifting, and you know, there's just something exhilarating about moving a giant amount of weight and knowing that not everybody in the gym mm-hmm. can do that. Um, and I don't think that's prideful. That's just feeling good about the accomplishment, yep. right? I think too. If go I'm looking? Well, I just Sorry, go going going on <laughs> with that
1: whole uh, gym analogy, like, and yes, we go to the gym to get stronger, but sometimes we will go to the gym to stay, maintain health as well. Right. So like this, this past year I had a quite a huge health scare. And because of that, I have to, I have to, for the goodness of my health, go to the gym. I have to run, I have to exercise my heart or else it's going to, it won't be a good thing. Right. So it's important that And same thing with courage, right? Like it doesn't, it's pushing you beyond, but maybe sometimes it just is there to kind of maintain us and keep us safe.
0: Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good point. Because um, I often say to people that you need to have your stuff sorted out before the crisis comes, right? And so uh, whenever I'm talking to somebody about, you know, leadership qualities or even just personal discipline or personal mastery of certain things, I often tell them, "Listen, you, you have to you have to work this stuff out before you get into the crisis or get into the storm. Because once you get into the storm, yes. it's too late. Because when you're in the storm, all you really have is just yep. your reactions. And so, I mean, look at it. Look at anybody who does anything. Um, <laughs> look at anybody <laughs> who does anything. Uh, um, <laughs> um, well, you, you take a look at sports people. Um, yep, they, that's why they practice, right? Unless you're Alan <laughs> Iverson, but."
1: I mean, listen, we're talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice.
0: Um, we won't go there. Um, look at pro mu- yeah. pro musicians, right? Um, look at anybody. They They constantly are honing their skills because when they're in the game, that's not the time to be honing their skills. Are they learning something? Yeah, they're yeah. learning and adapting as they go. But they, they put all the they put all the work in in the practice and, and I remember listening to somebody speak one time and he was saying, you know, when I practice so hard that I laugh mm. at game day because compared between the two, practice is always harder than game day. And I thought, OK, I kind of like that because it puts a lot of focus and emphasis on working hard before you right. get into the storm. Right. And so. I mean, you look at guys in the military or in the Navy or, or you know, anybody who does these things, uh, the Coast Guard. I mean, anybody who does any kind of rescue, like firefighters, police officers, ambulance attendants, they get all this massive amount of training and, and they keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it so that when they're in it, they don't even have to think about it. They just act. Yeah. Right. Then that's the thing. And I think that I think there's something about that with courage, too, that if you force yourself to be courageous in, in things that keep coming up in your life, then when those bigger things come, you have a body of work to draw from. Yes. Does that make sense? No, it totally
1: does. I totally agree. So how would you tie this into pedagogy then?
0: Yeah. So that's a good question. I've often heard this too, that the toughest, the toughest journey for anybody is from the head to the heart. Right. Right. Um, they, I call it, they they call it like the, the longest journey is 18 inches or something stupid like that. Mm. (laughs) Something (laughs) stupid like that. Um, but it's, you know, we often, I'll I'll just, I'll just be transparent. I can get wrapped up in the theory pretty easy. Right. And and I can, I can look at things from 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 feet pretty easy, but when it comes time to get boots on the ground, that's that's when it gets hard because your vision is limited. You can't, you can't see miles and miles ahead of you. Sometimes you can only see feet in front of you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when we're talking about taking it into our pedagogy, it's almost like it switches from a courageous pedagogy label to what I would call an authentic pedagogy label. Okay. And what I mean by that, because I think I think maybe the two are almost synonymous. And and let me let me lay this out. So, authentic, somebody who's authentic in their leadership style is someone who's transparent, who likes to collaborate, they're self-aware. Um, it's often been called values-based leadership. Um, and there's a bunch of different things that people will do in their authenticity to help engage others in in the in the in the practice of what they're doing and so um, one of the things that that authentic leaders try to do all the time is, it, is, it, is they try to be open they try to be honest they try to be transparent um, they try to share how they're feeling and in some cases you know that just doesn't work like if it's in a crisis I don't really care how the firefighter feels that day I just want him I want him to get me out of the building right right yeah um, so there are some times where this type of leadership style doesn't always work. And I think that's, that's a good thing to remember. But when we talk about our pedagogy, there comes this, this the, the, the social aspect to it, the relational aspect to it, where we have to start relating to those in our classroom and whether that's face-to-face or virtually. Right. And so... I'm not sure if i'm answering your question or if i'm just circling around but no no
1: i totally i was just wondering like again like tying courage into pedagogy i think that that's a great way to look at it especially i find it interesting the idea of the authentic leadership as well or authentic pedagogy and coming and showing up and being transparent and and doing all those things and it, it might come easier to some than others and it might it also depends on your situation like if we're talking pedagogy we could talk class sizes I have a class size of 16, so it's very easy for me to be open and transparent and vulnerable to my class. Whereas like you've got a class of 40 where you might find it a little more difficult. So there's different skills, I think, in coming across vulnerable to a larger group. Whereas with with a smaller group, like with a class of 16 students, I I actually I sit down and I meet with them. I have little interviews with them usually once every couple of weeks to check in. You can't do that with a class of 40. So then you have to think of other ways that you can push your authentic authenticity or your transparency across to your students. Yeah,
0: no, for sure. For sure. And I, I, if we were to move into stage two, being what is it, what does it look like? Uh, and, and how do we, how do we grow in it? I think we we'll that'd be stage three, but what does it look like primarily? And is it only reserved for a certain amount of people? Um, I, I I'm, I'm reminded of what Brené Brown says in, in, in her book on Dare to Lead. Mm-hmm. She actually gives four pillars of courage, and she she labels them vulnerability, clarity of values, trust, and risking skills. And and
2: what I've learned in the last couple of years is you can absolutely teach courage. You can develop it in yourself, and you can develop it in others. And it basically boils down to four skill sets. Um, Vulnerability, clarity of values, trust, and what I call rising skills. The, the ability to get back up when we fall, when we experience setbacks and failures. Um, it's interesting because I didn't think rising skills or resilience was going to be on those list, but as it turns out, the most courageous men and women I've interviewed over the past 15 years talk about their courage only being possible because they know how to get back up when they inevitably fall. And one of the things that's true is that if you're brave enough often enough, you will fall. It's not a question if you might fall. You will, by definition, if you're brave in your classrooms, in your life, with your partners, with your kids, with the people you care about. If you're brave, you're going to get hurt. I mean, the brokenhearted are the bravest among us because they have the courage to love, right? And so we have to learn how to get back up.
0: I often think of, of this situation where the the courage and the authenticity means that we need to navigate through some turbulent times and we need to endure hardship, but we also need to endure risk, right? And, and, and one step further, we need to endure the criticism. Mm -hmm. And because not every, not everybody looks at pedagogy the same way, right? Some people look at it as I've got this thing polished Kind of like what you and I talked about before, where you had everything all done. I've done the same thing where I've had, I've got all my outlines done. I've got my content done, I've got my PowerPoints done. I've got my questionnaires done. Everything's good. I can just step in and run the class, not the field. But the risky part comes, the courageous part comes. I would even dare to say the authentic piece comes when you're willing to fly without a net. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and so I see her four pillars kind of being enacted in that in the sense that you're, you're making yourself massively vulnerable when you do that,
2: right? Mm -hmm.
0: Because you're, you're taking yourself out of the comfort zone, Yes, right? You're exposing yourself. Um, you have to have a clarity of values, right? Because if you don't, then you're always going to be questioning what you do and why you're doing it. And you'll just be tempted to go back to the way you were always doing Mm -hmm. things, right? Um, you, there's a, there's a trust issue there and that, um, and I'm not sure how to flush this out. So maybe you can help me with this, but the, the thing, the thing I see with the trust issue is not so much does the class trust me so much, but it's, I'm going to trust the class with this time. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? You're going to trust
1: the class with this time. Let me just sit on that for a second. Now, by that, do you mean like you're you're trusting that if you are taking these big steps or taking the, these risks in pedagogy or stepping outside of your comfort zone, that you're trusting that the students will em, not embrace it, but kind of buy in and go along for the ride?
0: Yeah, I'm not even sure I want them to buy in and go for along for the ride just for the sake of making me feel good. No, but for because no, so. definitely not for the sake of making you feel good.
1: But maybe if they see like if you're an authentic person or you're transparent with them, you're open with them and you say you're willing to take these risks, maybe they they feel like there's a trust there that if you feel like it's good, it's not, they're not doing it for you, but they're doing it in the fact that you've trusted in them so much on the other side that they know that they, if you've, I'm trying to think here, I'm kind of talking around my certain circles here too. But the fact that they you've got this relationship of trust, the trust always has to go both ways. The authenticity has to go both ways. So if you're being authentic to them and they're being authentic to you, it becomes a circular motion where, If you're taking the risk, they feel safe enough to be able to take the risk with you, not because of you, but because you've all gone through this together and they can now trust themselves in it as well. If that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense because what I, what I keep thinking of when you were talking about that is just the intentionality of it, where you're not just flying by the seat of your pants because you're flying by the seat of your pants. Oh, definitely. Yeah. No, you've got to
1: have, there is a plan. There's always a, there's a flight plan, right? Now you might veer a little here, veer a little there, get
0: blown off course, but you're heading in some direction. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And then, and then the fourth piece is the the risking skills, like so, the stepping out and actually doing it, rather than just talking about it, right? Which is what we'll get to in Stage Three in a little bit. But there's those risking skills, and I, I like this quote that she she has in that book. She goes, "If you're not getting dirty too, I don't care about your feedback or your criticism." Yeah. I remember. <laughs> I mean, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan, so I remember that. And she
1: also, I think her big thing with that is the critics, like she's kind of like a critics be damned thing. It's all about you and how you feel about this. And you need to be vulnerable for yourself and you need to be vulnerable to yourself. So I think that goes along with our teaching too. We need to be vulnerable to ourselves and allow ourselves to know that there's going to be times where some of the things that we're going to try out or do or say are going to fall flat. And sometimes we're just going to have to brush ourselves up, get up and try again or try something different.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, there's some, there's some contrasts here that I was thinking of when I was working through this second stage piece. And, um, tell me what you think of these when I'm done. Okay. Um, the contrast between having to know it all and becoming a learner, um, having, to do it all versus becoming a delegator. The third one was having to be right always, as opposed to becoming less defensive. And the fourth one must prove others wrong. It's contrasted with becoming a supporter. Okay. Are you. <laughs> there's
1: so much in there. I mean, there's. To me, I mean, it's hard <laughs> to unpack a little. Let me. There's another four episodes. Yeah, exactly. We could talk to each one of those points, but it's funny enough. One thing that I've been reading a lot about lately is constructionism—the framework of constructionism and how we build our meaning through. It's like constructivism, but not. It's the V, not the. It's the N, not the V. Constructionism. Constructionism builds upon constructivism, which says that we need to. We use our past experiences to build our learning and our meaning, and then constructionism talks about how it kind of builds upon that. Not only do we use our past experiences. And all that other stuff, but we also use interaction with others and we build upon that and we build it through real time, real work, like a real artifact that we're building within a group. So now I've totally run off track as to where I, where I was going with this, <laughs> but we're, we're constantly building. And so we're, we're taking our meaning. Oh, I know where I'm going with this. And so we become instructors and teachers become facilitators in these frameworks, not just the, and again, we've talked ad nauseum almost about the whole stage from the stage guide by the side, but it's so important that we need to be vulnerable enough to come off that stage and work with our students and become learners. Like I've i been teaching for 10 years and every single class I still learn stuff about not only electrical, cause that's the area that I'm teaching it, but I learned about the pedagogy and I did try different things. And so it's, it's way more fun to come down off that stage and work with your students and facilitate and help and coach than it is to be up there unleashing all the great knowledge that I have upon them and then have them just, I'm depositing it all into their bank
0: accounts. Sure. But, but there's, there's a huge sense of, I'll just use the word vulnerability when you do that though, right? No, they definitely, there's a
1: vulnerability. You have to because you've lost control, not lost. Well, you have lost control. You've given up control. It's very easy to sit in front of the stage and just lecture. And because then you know exactly what you're going to say, you know exactly how much time you have. And it's all out there. And, you know, at the end of the day, as long as they regurgitate the information you've given them, all is good. There's total control in that. But by stepping off that stage and becoming a facilitator, now you have to figure out different ways to get the information to them. You have to help them not only just learn it, but to understand it and to make meaning from it. And so no longer are you teaching your students how to take tests, but you're teaching them the context of what you're trying to teach them, right? Like you teach organizational behavior so that you're not just going to get them to regurgitate all these theories and all that fun stuff now you're trying to come down have them work through exercises that will actually put them into real life context so that they not only learn something but they can they can use it right yeah exactly But, but there's a huge step in that and the fact that you've got to figure out those it's it's not easy and then they those ones are not those kind of exercises are not uh just cut and dry because you will go off on huge tangents Students will ask you questions that you have no idea what you're talking about. And like you said earlier, one of the four points is becoming a learner. So then you have to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I don't know. Maybe I need to come back to you and look at, I'll get back to you on that one. Cause I honestly don't know. That's a good question.
0: Let's, let's figure this out together. Let's look this up. So you lose a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know what, there's probably four or five episodes and some of the stuff that we're talking about here, but as you're, as you're. As you, as you were talking there and all of that was absolutely bang on, it makes me think of another contrast in the sense that some people in their, in their pedagogy feel like they need to be in control, Mm -hmm. that they must keep others compliant. Yep. Right. And, and in a certain way, there's going to be people who test the fence and they want to make sure that the fence is secure. Yep. Right oppose that or, or contrast that to people who share purposes people who share autonomy mm-hmm. in 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 essence what they're doing is they're shifting the boundaries of the fence yeah and so there's still boundaries there they're not they're not getting rid of them because that would just be chaos yes but they're allowing those boundaries to shift in response to who's on the inside. Yep. Right. And so I I look at, I look at one side of what we were talking about, like having to know it all having to do it all, having to always be right, having to prove others wrong, must be in control, must keep others compliant as, as a, well, I'm just going to call it out as a pride of life and a pride of ego. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas on the other side of that, coin or that line where we talked about becoming a learner and a delegator and becoming less defensive and becoming supportive and sharing your purposes and more importantly probably sharing your autonomy Mm -hmm. to me that's just wisdom not just it is wisdom (laughs) quote unquote just it's it's wisdom personified right yes i totally agree you're 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 still you're still a sage per se Because you have this body of work and you've, and you know, let's not minimize any of this stuff that we've done. Right. So Mm -hmm. we've got all this stuff, but we become comfortable enough in knowing what we know and and how to massage it that we don't need to be on the stage anymore. Right. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. And what happens, like I I teach a marketing
1: course and we talk a lot about branding and letting people know who you are and, The big thing is when you're you're dealing with businesses, most businesses position themselves as the the hero of a story. And so Donald Miller talks a lot about this in a book called Story Brand. But how we, it's not, we're not the hero of the story, how it's the clients who are supposed to be the heroes of the story. And to, to parlay that over into teaching, oftentimes I think instructors and teachers almost think of themselves as we're here, we're the heroes. And the students are, you know, they're the ones that need help. So we're here to help them. But what we look at when we look at really good stories, and that's where this Donald Miller story brand idea comes from is he says, look at the arcs of all the greatest movies. And you talk, he brings star Wars up a lot about how we think that um, Luke is the, the hero of the story and he he is, but he also has these other people come in and guide him. And so you could think that Obi-Wan or Yoda would be heroes in their own right, but they're not the guides, So they come alongside him. And they work with him and they show him where what he can become. And I think that's where, as a teacher, we need to be more like that, right? We need to be, the, not to sound too nerdy, but we need to be the Yodas or the Ben Kenobis where we come alongside our students. We have this knowledge, but we need to work with them and help them find their path through it. And every student's going to learn differently. And that's could be a whole other podcast as well through that. we need to come down off that stage and i've got 16 students in a class right now so i've got 16 different ways that these students learn so i need to be a guide to all 16 of them so and that takes a lot of courage i think to have student instructors be able to take that step off the stage to do that
0: yeah because the default is well the default that that i've heard for a long time is they don't know what what they're supposed to do they don't know what they don't know Yep. and if they don't know what they don't know and nobody's telling them explicitly what to know then how are they going to know right right it's almost like who's on what and what's on yeah. and a lot of other stuff right but it becomes this this point of <clears throat> not treating them like adults mm-hmm. right it comes to the point of saying to them here's all the material you're, you're going to need to learn in print form and by the way i'm going to go through it with you page by page and essentially read it to you. yeah and i'm just going to assume that you can't read and you can't understand so i'm going to tell you Everything that's on that page. How you do better. And then you're going to sit there and listen. <laughs> that's right. And not ask questions. Yep. Uh, and then when my three and a half hours or six hours is over, you're going to go home and you're going to do a ton of work, not knowing if you're doing it right or not, mm-hmm. only to come back the next day to figure out, yes, you have been doing it incorrectly. So now that that half mile down the road you accomplished last night, you're going to actually have to come back, start again. And then, oh, by the way, there's tonight's homework too. So now you've got a mile of homework to do rather than just half a mile.
1: Yeah. And then you're, you're so far behind, you just give up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then we wonder why people aren't successful when it comes to their, their experience in school. That's right. Kind of like that self-fulfilling prophecy thing that, I talk about a lot, but um, let's let's move into stage three and try and answer the question, what can we do to build a courageous pedagogy? What can we do to be more courageous in our pedagogy?
1: Well, I think the way the first step is to practice it. Actually, no, the first step would be to find out how to, right? So that's, that would be in setting up a a personal learning network where you can learn from, from other people, how they're doing it. You go to the internet, you go to Twitter, you find out all these different ideas that people have. You start reading books, you start talking to people, like that's where you're going to start learning about how to do it. And then once you have some ideas, you start practicing it and what, in my own experience, you don't have to, it's not a whole shift in everything you've done. Like I didn't get to the way I teach right now from teaching, lecturing one day, lecturing all day, and then giving worksheets all day to suddenly doing all these other things that I do. It took a long process to get there. <laughs> you mean it just wasn't yeah, overnight, it's, Chad? It's not an overnight sensation. What? But you, but you take pick one little thing. Like I don't, maybe you'll have, instead of having uh, worksheets, you have you have your students create some questions. Or you have your students create a, a resource or you get a Kahoot and instead of you doing a Kahoot or an online quiz, fun quizzy thing that you get that your students do it. Like it's these little steps that you can take towards it. And then you start practicing that and you start building that muscle and you start, you need quick wins, right? Everything is a quick, everything starts with a quick win. If you're not getting quick wins right away, you are going to, it's going to crash and burn. You're not going to feel feel like it's worth anything. So you start finding things that you can do that will give you those quick wins. You start getting more comfortable with it. And then you start taking bigger and bigger risks as you go, because that muscle has been flexed and it's getting bigger and bigger. So you can take those huge steps.
0: Yeah, exactly. As I was trying to think my way through this question, I kept coming into... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> another question from a movie that I don't know if I would say on the podcast, because I'm, I'm not sure if I would recommend it or not, but it's, it's a line screamed from a, from one actor to another and basically says, what's your major malfunction? Right. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> uh, in, in my own, in my own transition from having it all set on paper and electronic and doing it all to the point where I could just walk in blindfolded and do it to the point where I am now and I'm not anywhere near done, but I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm holding things a lot more loosely. I've, I've had to ask myself that question, like, okay, Carson, what's your major malfunction here? Like why, why you, you can assent to these things. Like I said earlier, I, I can, I can subscribe to the theoretical piece to this. I can, I, I can subscribe to the epistemological background of what we're doing here or the, or even call it a theological background to what I'm doing, right? I can subscribe to all of that. But when it comes time to put my feet on the ground and start walking, that's when it gets hard. And and so I come to this question like, okay, Carson, so what's your major malfunction? Like, why are you not doing this? Like you do other things where you just jump in and and start working at it, but you take small steps into it. And, and I'm gonna be vulnerable again and say that It's tough for me because there's a fear of doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. I have a a deep-seated fear of doing things wrong. And, okay, so then why? Why do you have this deep fear of doing things wrong? Jordan Peterson would say to me. Right. Right. Why? Why do you have that? All these subsystems in you that would like something aren't very happy just to sit there while you read this thing that you're actually bored by. And so they pop up and try to take control of your perceptions and your actions nonstop. Maybe you think, well, this is a stupid course anyways. Why do I have to read this damn paper? And what am I doing in university? And what's the point of life? It's like, you can really, well, you can really get going if you're trying to avoid doing your homework. And, and, and then you might think, well, what is it in you that's trying to avoid? Because... And uh, I, I, would, I would have to... I would have to say that it's because I don't want to be judged. Yep. Right. And, or let me, let me put it this way. I don't want to be criticized. Yes. I, I mean, and I don't know if anybody likes being criticized in, to a degree. Like everyone just goes, Oh yeah, I take criticism and I, and I turn it back on itself and I don't listen to others who uh, I don't listen to the haters. Well, you had to have at some point, right? Yep. Like you, you can't ignore everybody, And, and some people are a little more subtle at it than others. And it may, it may hit you on the side rather than the face, but it's still there nonetheless. Right. And you get better through criticism as well. Well, I mean, yeah, but you know, to me sometimes these things are just like a meme, Mm -hmm. right. You know, you grow stronger through criticism, you know, and, and you know, the strongest tree is the one who withstands the storm. And it's like, yeah, I get all that, but I keep coming back to this point of, I need to have this stuff sorted out before I get into the storm. Because if I'm in the storm trying to remember a meme, I'm going to break. Yeah. Right? Um, so in trying to answer that question, I, I say to myself, okay, so I'm fear of being criticized. Um, in, in in how to get tougher in that, I, I think about things that other people have written and and spoken and, and even watching other people do it they have this ability to challenge their comfort zone a lot, Mm -hmm. right? Like they know where their comfort zone begins and where it ends. Right. And the line is very clear and they know where it is. And sometimes they're not willing to go across it. Right. And yet those people who we would look at and call courageous in their pedagogy have not only recognized their major malfunctions, but have stepped across the line. Yep. They've challenged their comfort zone.
1: And I think it gets a lot into that whole idea of ego, right? You've got this ego that's in the back here. It's it's there to protect you. And the ego is a good thing. It was a good thing, but it, it makes you want to run away from problems, right? Or not problems from fear. Because back when we were just all cavemen wandering the earth, if there's a saber toothed tiger running at you, you had to run, right? So the ego is there to protect. But now these things are not so life-threatening, but we still have that ego that's there telling us, okay, no, you can't do this. Or maybe it's, there's been a lot of stuff you you were grown, grew up criti- like in a critical household. And so you're always told that you can never do it. So that's that ego voice that's in the back of your head all the time telling you, you can't do it. And so the courage comes in not listening to that ego and stepping into your higher self and moving on beyond that. So again, that's that's such a powerful voice that can do so much damage as, at the same time as trying to protect you.
0: Yeah, for sure, and I think I think one of the biggest players is fear, right? Because um, we don't know all the answers, and I think some of us want to know all the answers before we move forward. And until we know all the answers, we're not going to do anything. Thank you very much, right. right? And I think I think one reason why we get stuck there is because of fear, and so. Uh, and, and, and what I've always said to my, my family and, and my class uh, and my students has been that in the absence of information, when we don't know the whole story, in an absence of information, we do what Gervais uh, Bush calls, we add the mush. We add our own story into the mm-hmm. narrative. And nine times out of 10, that narrative is is wrong. It's yeah. false. And so you have this broad story and you have pieces of it and the rest you're filling in is false. Well, if something goes wrong, then what are you essentially doing to yourself? You're proving yourself yep. right by saying, well, I knew this was going to happen and I knew this was going to yep. go sideways and I knew this was going to screw up and look at it. Did. Yep. Um, and yet when people seem to challenge their comfort zone, they're, they're erasing the mush yep. in, in essence. And and that's what I want to do more of. I want to. I want to start erasing more of the mush, and start challenging my comfort zone even more when it comes to my own pedagogy, um, whether that's in the open arena or whether that's in a classroom or or whether that's with anything in in, in this thing that I call um, work, right? Um, I, I want. I want to challenge that more. And and so, I boil it down to this in the sense that. People who are courageous with their pedagogy, at least from my perspective, they seem to go against the giants, right? Like fear is a giant. Mm -hmm. And even though they recognize that they could get their butts kicked if they walked out there and took on fear, they're still walking out there and taking it on, right? So it brings us back to the beginning of courage is not the absence of fear. it's, it's, It's enacting what you need to do despite the fear. Yeah. And so if there's a fear of being criticized, okay, yep, that, that could happen. Um, but I'm going to do this anyway, because you've done all this groundwork or I've done all this groundwork before and getting my values clear and getting them strong and embedded and then moving forward. So that when the storm comes, I'm not trying to do all that at the same time as I'm fighting the giant. Right. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. I, this like is what you just, into a, I like what you just, I like what you said, turning into a, a monster. <laughs> yeah. This is turning into a, uh, what do you, what do you call that? A, a session and a couch. Yeah. That's what it, that's the, that's the thing but
1: there's so much behind that because you do have to overcome your fears. And I, I, I mean, we probably could talk and talk and talk about that. And we, maybe we should bring up an episode about pedagogy and the ego because, and mm-hmm. fear because it's, mm-hmm. I mean, courage, I mean, we're just starting to just scratch the surface on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Well, that's, that's not all. No, (laughs) that's about a page. That's about a page of the five pages of notes that I have here, but, um, before we go into the,
1: before we go, I got one quote that I want to give that Renee, Renee Brown uses a lot and it's from Theodore Roosevelt and it's from him. And it says here, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. And that's just, I love that quote. We just got to get in there and not, we do not need to give credence to our critics. We just need to get into the fight and see what happens and just try, try again.
0: Good old Teddy. Good old Teddy. Yep. Good old Teddy. Well, let's, uh, let's close it off for today. Yeah. And, um, we'll, we've got about five or six episodes we can circle back onto outside of what you and I've already talked about off air. Um, and, uh, hopefully this will be therapeutic session. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Of. This is more <laughs> therapeutic than, uh, than prescriptive, but I think that's okay because, um, this is part of that vulnerable piece for me and doing a podcast and getting stuff out there and not just interviewing people and yeah. all the cool things that they're doing. Yeah. And I stand back in, and in awe and admiration. And some of it inspires me and, and some of it motivates me. And as much as you know, how much I hate the word motivation. <laughs> um, but, um, it's, it's, that's all good. Um, but I think it's, I think it's important for us to kind of sit down and work through some of this stuff on our own and let other people hear us do that because, Maybe they're in the same spot.
1: Agree, unless they want to come to Jimmy's and join us for a pint one night. This is the closest they're going to get.
0: <laughs> well, you know, Langley might be a little far uh, for some. So, uh, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> hard to, hard to, hard to do that virtually. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, the, the invitation is always open. So you can, uh, you can call us and we'll, uh, we'll take yeah, you out.
1: They're buying.
0: <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> All right. So, um, if there's one thing that you could leave people with, uh, after doing this uh, little session what would it be about courageous pedagogy listen
1: to that voice in your head telling you you can't do it and try to understand what it's there for is it is it a real voice or is it telling you that is it actually telling you don't do it because there is real danger there or is it telling you don't do it because you you've got some baggage that comes along with that and i think there's a lot in that and it's uh sometimes it might demand more of a therapy session with an actual counselor but I think we need to start listening and recognizing that, that ego voice and realizing that it's not always there for our best interest.
0: Good words, man. Good words. All right, everybody. Thanks for uh, tuning in and listening to this uh, therapy session we call courageous pedagogy. And um, we would be most appreciative if you would do a few things, if you would subscribe to the podcast, if you haven't already done that. Uh we are available on all your infamous, famous podcast platforms, as well as going to iTunes and giving us a rating of five stars because that would take away our fear. There you more go. Of these things. In- and uh there's also a website, uh praxispedagogy.com, you can go to and subscribe to that because guess what? I've got all these notes sitting in front of me and I mean we're gonna do more podcasts, but there's some stuff on here that I'm gonna put into a, a wee wee little newsletter. And uh, email out to uh, everybody on the list. So if you want to get your hands on that newsletter, um, sign up on the website, PraxisPedagogy.com. And uh, we'll be happy to include you in the community. As always, Chad, a pleasure. It's always
1: a pleasure. Where can people find you on the uh, socials there, Mr. (laughs) Oh, look
0: at you. Uh, I am... At Guild Podcast on the Twitterverse. And that's kind of where I reside right now. I I, I don't use Facebook uh, anymore, hardly ever. My wife uses it more than I do, which is kind of funny. But, um, um, so I'm not really using Facebook that much, although I could probably get back. Um, Instagram, I'm at the guild cod, the guild podcast. Um, I'll include those in the show notes, the mystical show notes. That's where you can find me, but I'm mostly on Twitter now. Surprisingly. Yeah. yeah. It's a good it's, place. Um, it's a good place. It's opened up quite a bit. And, uh, I'm always amazed at the stuff that people are doing and, and I'm kind of amazed at who follows me, to be honest with you. I'm very thankful for that. Mm-hmm. So, um, how about you? Where can people find you? I'm mostly,
1: I'm, I would say the only place to find me right now is on Twitter. So I'm at Chad H Flynn, F-L-I-N-N at Twitter. Unless you want to see pictures of my kids, then you can follow me follow me on Instagram at, at Flynnigan. But uh, I don't think you need to do that because it gets really boring. <laughs> I mean, a five-week-old looks the same as a four-week-old, as a three-week-old, but I keep posting pictures. So. Oh,
0: not to the mom, no. Not <laughs> no, to the mom. Definitely not. A diff- Anyway good so thanks again Everybody and uh, until next week Take it easy Later